you know, to we've been involved in uh, nine different performance contracting failures. And one of the commonalities that led to uh, a dispute which resulted in legal action, one of the biggest commonalities, in addition to commissioning oversights or, or variances, was the lack of clarity slash understanding of the financial metrics, which were or financial pro formas, which were proposed, accepted, and expected to be delivered by the customer versus the understanding of the projections on the part of the ESCO. So it, in, in light of that, this is a significant topic. It is a um, relevant topic. And I think all of us here have different observations, assessments, commentary, and uh, should be interesting for anybody that is engaged in this business. Yeah, I would say it's got a big part of it. Absolutely. I don't know if you're going to talk more about the expectations there. I was kind of interested in that without details, but you know, it seemed a uh, performance contract is pretty straightforward as far as what the final financial expectations are. Well, <coughs> oh, <laughs> uh, I agree. Uh, on the surface, there is. Um, it would seem so, Nick, uh, and I I agree with you. When you when you boil it all down, if there is clarity in the communication and clarity in the uh, language spoken, I would agree with you. It's very straightforward. However, I think uh, you know we're we're all relatively non sales types. We're you know black and white engineering rules. The the um, rules of performance uh, measurement is very straightforward and I think it is a it, it happens where the lines get blurred and it actually I, I think it, again I have to talk about Adam Muggleton but he posted the uh, um, a, a post on LinkedIn that had George Costanza in it and said well if you believe it's true it's true even if it's a lie well, that's a fact. If, if, especially in the performance contracting arena, go to a school board, you go to um, not for profit. Typically, you're used to dealing with people that talk in real dollars and cents in real budgets. And when we start talking about avoided costs or savings, they expect that if you predict X, their bill will go down by X or X plus. And when that doesn't happen, that is a source of consternation, frustration, and ultimately uh, some form of dispute resolution, be it litigation, arbitration, mediation. You just don't know. But I think the lack of a common knowledge base and a language is oftentimes the source of the dispute. Yeah, I was I was going to say I would have to be down into the mechanics of how the numbers are computed. And then, yeah, that's always a sticking point or a point of trouble, especially if it's not discussed. Yeah, I was on this call yesterday uh, working on this, you know, chiller integration project, central plant type optimization. And uh, looking at the contract, you know, usually there's there's language in there about adjustments for additional uh, cooling loads 
Sure. We can identify them and all that. But then we're thinking about the reality of, well, this could be one of the first times that we see, you know, large reductions in cooling load. This was a higher education, a university. And, you know, depending on what they're doing in the fall, you know, they may not have the loads that were once there. And unfortunately, in the contract, there really isn't that language about a a floor cooling load or what's going to be, you know, assumed for the model and for the all the requisite calculations that need to happen. So we need to approach that with the customer just so we don't face that in, you know, the next quarter of explaining, you know, well, here's what it is. We still did achieve uh, whatever X percent reduction, but the money is probably not going to be there, the dollars. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. But so now I have to be the customer advocate. So why would any customer or why would any ESCO present a non-bilateral contract like that, that only has an upside and no, um, you know, everybody talks about, well, the benefits of performance contracts being, you know, fair and those kind of things. I don't understand why any customer would ever sign a contract like that that didn't have a, uh, well, if we shut a building down, here's what the impact is and here's what the options are. You can either buy out or accept, you know, the, the ESCO can accept the minimum base load or, I mean, none of those, the, the contract was silent on all of that. Uh, contract buyout and termination is pretty good, but, you know, that's an extreme case when it comes to that. But no, the it only really dealt with the, you know, addition of cooling yeah. loads. So, huh. yeah. Well, so hmm. that could be one of those cases where, yeah, there is some expectations that really weren't aligned. Yeah. Then they have to arm wrestle. Yeah. But, you know, it happens. Pretty straightforward. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Just needs to be discussed in advance. So that's, that's right. your point that's about, right. you know, somebody expecting. Oh, you know, you told me it was a three-year simple payback, but, you know, then they really look at it and go, well, you know, how come we're financing this thing for seven, eight years? Well, because, you know, that's how it works when you do have to finance the project. Hey, guys, welcome to VS Energy's Energy Podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferry, and here with us today is Mark Sankey and Nick Taliska. In today's podcast, we will be discussing the calculations of financial metrics in an energy audit. So we're kind of picking up from our previous episode and diving more into the financial end of the energy conversation and why accurate financial calculations are critical in an energy audit. And in a way you kind of heard from what we were talking about in the beginning of this podcast, why, why, you know, it's important and why everything should be outlined. Well, one of the things that, uh, you know, I've always really preached and believed is that building owners, especially uh, financial buyers, always ask the three questions, how much, how soon, how certain, and financial metrics speak to all of those very definitively, especially in the case of large-scale uh, contracts or performance contracts. There is the how much, how do we quantify it, mm -hmm. how soon, how soon does the cash flow happen? Does all the cash flow start at one time? Are all the 
conservation measures, our facility improvement measures scheduled to come online at the same time. And the biggest question then becomes how certain? And uh, there's actually a white paper on our website that I published a few years ago in um, uh, Strategic Planning for Energy and the Environment, uh, peer-reviewed document that basically spoke to the risk assessment and assignment of risk to specific facility improvement measures based on their complexity, based on the probability of performance and success, and based on the timing. But the the point is that uh, there's a wide variance in the level of complexity of financial analysis based on the complexity and timing and magnitude of the project all the way from very simple measures, all the way to very complex measures that include uh, before and after tax, discounted cash flows and depreciation and depreciation models, et cetera. So it's important that the appropriate measures are applied based on the customer's expectations and based on the size and complexity of the project. Sort of be fair to say that it seems to follow, you know, we talked about the different um, ASHRAE audit levels, one, two, and three the probably the the complexity of the financial metric calculations generally follow that was in level one being pretty simple and level three being much more complex um large project kind of calculation i i believe so um one of the things that you need to keep in mind is if you go from level one level two level three the largest differentiator is the degree of certainty that results from the calculations and modeling uh, as you go from a very simple energy audit to a more complex and certainly interactive slash, um, you know, where facility improvement measures impact each other and it's necessary to gauge the level that interaction as it relates to resulting energy conservation or cost reduction. So in general, that is correct, Clayton. Mm -hmm. When do you, Kind of, and you said it, the, the financial metrics follow the owner's expectations, but obviously at some point you need to, you need to have that conversation with the owner, right? To say, this is what our financial calculations are going to look like if we're, and we're going to talk a lot about, you know, the different aspects, ROI, uh, straight line payback, you know, IRR, all that good stuff. But when do you have that conversation at, at the very beginning of like the energy audit process or once you gather your information, you say, I don't know, I just, when do you have that conversation so everybody's expectations are in line? I think it, it begins all the way at the inception of the project. And typically we generate a proposal for an energy audit or, you know, uh, some contract document that says, here's what we plan to deliver. And during the construction of that document, uh, Generally, we interact with the owner and say, here's what we would expect to provide. Is there anything in addition or supplemental or that you would like to have modified? Otherwise, this will be our plan going forward so that you don't end up, I mean, rework is bad anywhere you have to do it. But right. certainly when you have to go back and you know rewrite a report, that's not good. And depending on you know a level one, level two, level three audit, a level two audit, we would probably have two, maybe three meetings during the course of the audit and generation of the final report 
during which we would be able to amplify or clarify any owner expectations regarding the uh, performance metrics methodology of calculation and what we expect the uh, methodology to be. And are you, as you go through the energy audit process, gathering the, obviously the, um, you know, energy data and determining, you know, your, when do you start bringing in the financial calculations? Is that after you've gathered all your information or are you generally doing it as you move along? I assume it to some extent, as you move along, you know, what things might cost, you, you know, a lot of this already as you're going through. So, you know, when do you just start getting really into the detail financially? Uh, as soon as, as basically, as, as you said, during the process, as we start to generate numbers and, you know, as we're going through the process, all those numbers are variable and flexible and we can modify them as we get closer to the uh, completion. But we start to fill in the numbers right away. So at least we have an idea, albeit rough, right. of where specific measures will fall out, shake out in the, in the big scheme of things. And, you know, we've, we've been doing this for a long time. So when things start to look outside the typical boundaries, then it's reason to go back and say, why do we have very high costs or very high savings estimates? And, right. Um, what's outside the boundaries of what we would normally expect that is driving these numbers. Because what you really, you know, here, <laughs> I have to tell a story. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we, we hired, we hired a, a young engineer, very bright guy and enthusiastic as all heck and just, uh, you know, a ball of fire and, uh, you know, really smart. And I sent them out to a project over in Ohio uh, for big, steam boilers ohio specials and uh we were we were going to uh do some combustion o2 trim and some other things etc 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 so i just let him go i got this okay waved me off and uh he spent about a week on it and brought it in we sat down to go over it and uh it was a three-month payback and was going to save, if I recall this right, about $450,000 a year, roughly. And it's very good. You know, it's really terrific work. The downside of this is their whole utility bill is only 450. I mean, the whole gas bill is only $450,000 a year. Yeah. <laughs> so through the course of the audit, and it was a good exercise, you know, learning yeah. exercise. But, you know, you, there has to be some sensibility applied to the measures as they unfold and reveal themselves. Is this is this calculation, can it possibly write? Is it, you know, pass the smell test? Right. Well, and sometimes, Mark, at least I found with the, uh, you know, guaranteed savings projects where you're bundling a number of projects, there may not be that direction going in about, you know, here are our concrete financial metrics other than maybe what the contract vehicle, whether it's state or federal, allows, which may be as simple as, you know, it has to be net positive cash flow every year and you can't have a term over whatever, 20 years. Uh, you know, usually with 
non-federal, non-state, non-government, you're given some more concrete metrics. But, you know, a lot of times with facility work, they know that this work has to be done, you know, whether it's, so they know they, they, you know, the windows are old and they would like to fit them into the project. And even though the windows may not pay back for 50 years right. or more, but they have other facility improvement projects, which are two and three year paybacks. And together it makes an attractive, you know, aggregate project. So yeah, it can be, it can be limiting if your customer comes in or you, or the customer says to you, we only want to look at three year paybacks and below, which does happen. And I found that quite a bit in more industrial type of customers, but, uh, Sometimes the financial constraints aren't as, I don't know, certain as you would think going into the project. And it's kind of a process to figure out exactly, well, here's, here's what you're looking at. And then sometimes to look at the different, you know, ways of measuring the value of a project or the return, you know, that, that comes into play when you're deciding between alternatives of a project. We've done a lot of things with, okay, we need to do chiller replacement. Well, we doing direct fired absorption or we doing a centrifugal, you know, what, what kind of, you know, uh, decisions have to be made within the scope there that's defined to meet their financial hurdles. Well, that's a, you are 100% correct in that, Nick. And especially in the government sector, it, as a taxpayer, I think it's a, you know, a great idea if we can produce cost avoidance and, push that back into facility improvements that are either caused by, you know, lack of capital improvement or lack or deferred maintenance that have resulted in a need for an upgrade. And you're exactly right. When you're dealing in the public sector, I don't care whether it's, you know, schools, hospitals, government facilities, they don't necessarily want to put money back in their budget because oftentimes there's not even a place where it can go to. They would rather see everything be pushed back into facility improvements with a dollar left over at the end of the year to say that it's positive cash flow. And that mechanism is, uh, is entirely uh, appropriate and really uh, a, a, a very good thing for public work. Obviously, you still need the sensibility of your whatever, if you want to call it your primary project for the you know, rate of return to say, okay, if I do this whatever chiller swap out my payback is x amount of years okay that makes sense now let's add in some other things that necessarily don't give us much of a return and still try to keep that positive correct yeah so you still have to have a i know you weren't saying you don't nick but obviously you still have to have a good understanding of the sensibility factor in it i mean i remember doing practice problems with mark you know, right when I got out of college and this, this looks great. This makes a whole lot of sense. And then he's like, you sure you can, I don't know. Some of it, once you break it down and look at the sensibility, it's like, oh, this makes no sense. I don't know how I thought those calculations were working. No, you're talking in terms of the, the financial viability and yeah, appeal. Yeah. Even save, even, uh, you know, avoidance, it, obviously it all comes into this. So, you know, I'd say, oh, that I, Doing this will give me, I don't know, X amount of you know, avoidance. Then you bring it into your financial metric and your payback's really great. And Mark would be like, what are you doing? That, that makes no sense. How can you get that? 
And then I'm like, well, yeah. Not sure I was quite that blunt. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to, you know, cast you in that shadow, but <laughs> that's okay. It, it's just it once you learn and it's tough starting out because once you once you do have an understanding of that sensibility, it's it makes it a whole lot easier to say, oh yeah, this this type of project should have this type of return. If it doesn't, I'm a quick calculation, something's wrong. Where did we go wrong? And you can ask that question a lot sooner than going too far down the road and then, you know, having issues down the road. Well, yeah. And so many of these evaluation methods, you know, financial methods for evaluating projects, they can be progressive. You know, you may start with that simple payback mm-hmm. and then if that proves out, right. you go into more detailed analysis. And then, you know, as you get up there and you look at different ways of looking at things, you know, there's multiple ways to evaluate a project. A lot of it comes down to, well, what does your, your customer, your client use internally and what makes sense for them? And then there's ways to kind of balance, you know, look at different metrics. But, mm-hmm. you know, if your simple payback from the start is off because that one example Mark gave, you know, they projected you're going to save 102% of their utility bill, then... It makes yeah. every successive step really not make a lot of sense. Right. Yeah. Yep. And it, you know, I don't know if you guys want to talk about it, but in my experience, doing the financial calculations, it's a, I think it's a lot of fun because you need to play a lot of different roles, right? You're, you're the individual that determines the avoidance. You're estimating the cost of a project and looking at all the, the financial ends. You, you wear a lot of different hats. I think that takes a, a lot of balance and skills, I guess you'd call it that, right? I don't know practice. Yeah, I don't know if that's worth talking about. I mean, does that always happen that way, or is there generally a team? Somebody's really good at this, somebody's really good at that, and somebody's re- you know, and you bring it all together, or is it usually one individual kind of running the driving the ship like that? In in larger organizations, or even where they compartmentalize between there's an energy engineer, there's an estimating department, there's a project manager. Uh, it typically happens in different compartments, and then those are brought together to the financial analyst or right. uh, the individuals that do the financial modeling. We're just too small to do that, and I'm a micromanager anyway, so we always provide good estimates. We always provide good cost avoidance estimates. So I'm just as happy to do it myself because um, I'm a skeptic by nature. And when I get numbers from contractors, I know they're, they call them budget numbers. So they're inflated by 50%. So that'll kill a project all by itself. Yep. And would just as soon do it myself. Yeah. And I enjoy it. I, I personally really like having the, the whole blanket of it all, but I just wanted to ask the question for the listeners, maybe if they're you know, how it usually works or what, what you can, I'm interested in in Nick's perspective on this. Uh, Well, early on, I mean, definitely a team effort with costing and whether you're uh, obviously including service costs and and maintenance and repair and the whole cash flow and all that. But, you know, I do remember working in in a team and, you know, I was the energy person. We had a project manager and then the, the account executive and the project manager and I had offices next to each other and whenever we were putting together the financials for a project, you know, the sales guy would come in and I'd hear him go into Rick's office and say, Rick, your price is too high. 
And then he'd come over, he'd pop his head in my office and go, Nick, savings are too low. Right? And that's what he was trying to do and balance that. And I'm sure he'd go over and talk to the service guy too and say, hey, we need to do something here because the cash flow. So he was kind of driving, he was in tune with, you know, what the customer wanted as well mm -hmm. as, you know, what they could handle, you know, if it had to be more than maybe they were thinking going in or an extended term. But I also think the important thing that when you're thinking about the financial analysis, it really pinpoints that these are financial deals. You know, there's no way around it. It's not necessarily, well, until we get into, you know, social return on investment, which I think we may be seeing coming in years and different, different financial metrics, but mm -hmm. it is about saving money. Uh, it's about becoming more profitable for your customer, your client, a whole different things. But I remember one time many years ago, we were doing these energy contracts. There's a bunch of energy engineers. And then we started talking about, hey, we ought to start incorporating water conservation into our projects. Well, this young engineer really, he almost quit over this because he said, I'm here to save energy. And that's all he cared about was saving energy. Hmm. You know, it was more of a, a big, you know, philosophical mission he had, but he, he had a hard time with the fact that we were helping the customer save money on their water bills. But so, it, you know, it took some talking and he finally kind of came around to see, well, water is just a, just as precious a resource as energy. And there just happens to be, you know, dollars assigned to that commodity. So, and it helped, you know, do other energy projects, but it is a financial deal and it does take a little bit of, I think maybe for younger engineers when they start getting into the financial aspect of it, you know, to understand. And there's many times you think a project is great and it's cool and it's innovative and it's going to work. And the customer just doesn't have the stomach for it either financially or, you know, just, Hey, it's not how they've done it. We don't want a heat recovery rooftop unit. We just want a, something that's going to be new and work and be more efficient than the last one. And, you know, those are tough to push on somebody. It's their money and they need to spend it how they see fit. Do you often get into the, the details? I, I mean, obviously you get in the details, but like, I don't know, like when you go to the, the CFO, right? And you say, this project will have a internal rate of return of whatever percent and it's good. Like how often do you say, and this is exactly what we're doing and how we're doing it? Well, if they, you know, for that example, internal rate of return, if that's what they specified, I would personally, we've never done that, bring a set of financial metrics to a customer and say, hey, here's a different way to look at it. Mm -hmm. It's usually about, and they may say they want multiple, but right. if they want to know and if they give you a hurdle rate and say, we need an internal rate of whatever, whatever, or tell us what the internal rate of return is, then, you know. There's That's not much you reason them. to go into the methodology of it. Right, they right, do right. understand that. Right, yeah. right. But they do yeah. a more complex thing when you're talking about, you know, when you get beyond a simple payback, which generally everybody understands, mm -hmm. and generally everybody understands the, the merits of it, but as well as the drawbacks of it. So number one being the time value of money, which CFOs, people that run companies, very much understand. So. Mm -hmm. They're more interested in maybe the mechanics of the cash flows 
you know, and understanding how that is computed. Uh, but generally they do want to know where the numbers come from. So, right. Yeah. I want to uh, go back to before we started talking about credits and we started right after Nick's story. So there, there's also now, and has been for oh, a decade or so, emphasis on reduction of carbon dioxide. So typically we provide as an adjunct to the re report or as an adjunct to the financial metrics, the uh, carbon dioxide emission reductions. But you know, it was a few years ago, I think 2014, that a hacker in London stole $11 million of carbon credits. Can you imagine what? that? No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, what's a carbon uh, credit? Well, you get uh, credits for reducing your carbon mm -hmm. emissions. But I, I was when that happened, it really, you know, was flabbergasting to me. And I thought, you know, if my grandfather was alive, I can just imagine trying to explain to him that a guy used a computer, which he would have no idea what that is, to steal paper that represented $11 million worth of carbon emissions that never happened. I mean, he, he would, you know, even when I, my dad was still alive and I explained that to him, he was like, you got to be kidding. I said, no, that's, that's the world we live in. But the point is that CO2 credits have value, and especially when it comes to renewables and carbon offsets for industrials and those kinds of things. So it is important to quantify the CO2 reduction as well. I suppose, yeah, that definitely makes sense to quantify that. And we see that a lot in, um, in like our uh, energy dashboards that we make, right? You can sure. quantify that off of your avoidance. Sometimes it's, you yep. could do CO2, you could convert it to how many gallons of gas or anything. I mean, to, to make it a, I don't know, tangible thing to see what you, what you saved or avoided. Yep. Well, and I think it's been, this may be tangential, but certainly related the whole movement with the, the ESG dimension, you know, the environmental, social and governance criteria. It's being talked about more. You know, you do hear talk of a triple bottom line, uh, wanting to bring that to corporate reports, things like that. But, you know, the, you know, we talk about return on investment, which is, you know, another one of these criteria that people look at. But there are, you know, companies talking about a social return on investment. And these things do scare me a little bit because I think of, carbon credits i think of renewable energy certificates and i think about the lack of governance in those things and uh they seem like a very fertile ground for fraud and corruption and that upsets me not because i'm not participating in it but it upsets me because it i think corrupts the rest of the industry and a lot of good things that are being done out there so i'm kind of interested to see you know, what a once we start because Mark, when you do your knocks and socks, you know, re, uh, reductions, there's no value to it and no dollar sign to it yet. But I think people want to try to figure out a way how to quantify that impact. You, you know, and you would consider zero. that to be like the, um, the, uh, 
what what'd you call it? The, the social 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 return on investment. Yeah, you would you would consider right. that to be social return? Like I would consider it to be like if I put in um color tuning lights in a school and they cost a lot more, but I know students are gonna learn better. That's my social return on investment. That might be yeah, one of those criteria, but how do you yeah. quantify that? You no, know, no, you don't. I think it's just a good excuse to say we want we want this. <laughs> I, I don't know. That's kind of Nick's point. Yeah. No, I, use that as a good excuse for whatever they want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, okay. I, we're on the same page then. I, <laughs> well, no, there's nothing wrong. And I totally agree. When you're when you're proposing a project like that, you're not going to say we want to put a new whiz-bang cool lights, but you definitely, especially, you know, depending on the environment, you want to promote the other, the softer side of the benefits, which sometimes can be difficult to quantify. Right, you yeah. Know, improved lighting, really. How do you how do you necessarily quantify that? I mean, you can right. show that the lighting levels have improved, but I think people just maybe intuitively expect, yeah, my students are probably going to do better if they're in a well lit environment than in the dark with half the lights out in their classroom. Well, that there's actually um, publication and studies that have been done about color rendering as well as light levels for different educational functions. And I think that's what Clayton was, was referring yeah, to. Yeah, right. And so, you know, they, you know, they quote the statistical performance um, of students in different light levels, but how do you, there's no dollar value you can assign yeah, to that. Right. It's just, uh, it is what it is. And the same is true with Knox and Sox. No dollar value, as you said, yet. But like you're saying, like knowing that, you know, Knox and Socks is just, I don't want to call it this, like a feel good thing, like, or you're just saying it's making the world less polluted. I don't know. When you mean a, a social aspect to it. Yeah, a little bit of both. Yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, contributor to acid rain, deforestation, all those good things that um, people just love to hate, which is legit. But, um, there is no Knox or Sox offset right now, like there is with CO two. Yeah. Now that makes sense. I see what you guys are saying. I will say it's something to maybe to add on this or what have you. Yeah, and we've had this conversation before, and I, I, I imagine it was in the Energy Podcast, but and I don't want to. Right, we're not here to. I'm not here to bash renewable energy, but. When you when you think about NOx and SOx and CO two, and somebody looks at a solar panel, they might think this is great, this is green, life is good, no, you know, carbon emissions. But nobody, or I don't want to say nobody, a lot of people don't look at what what was required to get to that solar panel, as in, you know, combustion from transporting or manufacturing and all that stuff. So. I don't know. I, you can really, you can look at something very quantitatively at what is the the CO2 emissions of his life cycle and make a educated decision on what's better for the environment. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think at least my thought is that you'll probably see some of those things rolled more into the life cycle cost, you know, methods when people are evaluating alternatives, because to be fair, you know, if you were going to say, well, you need to look at everything that went into that solar panel, 
well, then you should look at everything that went into your, your chiller, you know, or your boiler and all the working fluids and how do they get produced and made and all that. So, but it is, it does all come down to quantifying things for some reason of comparison, right? You're talking about these financial metrics. You know, the truth is money is a resource too. And there's always an alternative use for money. And when you're talking about a customer site, they can just as easily be indifferent to a project and say, no, well, I think we'll not, you know, do this. Or they have a lot of different competing, you know, options for their money, which is why they do spend a lot of time looking at these, you know, metrics or different ways of, of looking at how their money is best being used. And a lot of these methods have different, you know, merits and pluses and others have uh, a lot of things that don't necessarily apply depending on what the project type is. Well, I think we should dive into those metrics now. Okay. Starting with, we've talked about it, but straight line payback. So that's pretty obvious, pretty straight, straightforward, ironically. Um, you, you have your annual costs and your, your, your cost and your savings, your annual savings, and you divide the two and what do you get? Three years, five years, seven years, right? Pretty straightforward. When, Correct. when is that not enough? Like at what point do you say, okay, we need to, we need to move forward from straight line payback to more uh, intricate financial calculations? So the, there's a couple things that go into um, that switch from straight line payback to more comprehensive analysis. And one would be the size of the project. So Nick, let's see. We want to do a chiller replacement or a LED light bulb replacement. The LED light bulb replacement, inclusive of rebates, has a payback of 2.5 years. The uh, and it could be just one light bulb. And the uh, chiller project has a payback of 5.7 years. Obviously, we're going to change the one light bulb, but in the context of how much savings are produced, the light bulb in a campus setting for instance would be it wouldn't even make an impact not one if you just change one light bulb but if you just compare the two projects simply on the basis of uh, straight line payback the light bulb wins so it doesn't take into account the magnitude of the project nor uh, necessarily the duration of the project uh, the chiller retrofit would probably last have a have a physical life of i don't know pick a number uh, 15 to 20, maybe 25 years, uh, the LED light bulb, probably less, 10 years, eight years, uh, something in that order before relamping is required. So it doesn't, the, the straight line payback, great, quick, easy, but not necessarily representative of projects in terms of comparing one to another on a long-term basis. And I would add that simple payback or straight line payback, whatever it's being called now, is probably one, if not the only financial metric that is very, it's, it's known to most people or most people can figure it out very quickly. I think every other thing we get into today, you know, can, can be a little, I wouldn't say nebulous at all, but more complex. 
And obviously, because you're accounting for different time horizons and inflation right. and interest. So simple payback is just how it sounds. Simple. I guess simple and easy to calculate. But so it's, it's good for uh, also kind of leading you down those roads. Like, I mean, I agree with everything Mark said. You can't just look at the simple payback, but it does also help guide you to where you want to be looking or what avenues you want to pursue or possibly which are quickly dead ends. Mm-hmm. So what would be, I don't know, like if you had to put these financial m- metrics on a scale, what would be the next complex step up? Um, if presuming, yeah, presuming you can get a um, preference from the financial decision maker, right? Either internal rate of return or net present value. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they have an internal hurdle hurdle rate that they can give you and a time horizon that they're looking at, that is how many years the project will be evaluated over, and that varies from customer to customer based on whether it's a um, you know, a site that will be in operation for a plan for 10 years, but most facilities usually only, you know, look at seven year max for their time horizon. And some are less than that, which still squeezes a lot of projects out, but um, net present value and IRR would be the next two that I, before tax, just basically no, no tax, no depreciation right. impact, but just straight NPV IRR. So, well, essentially, right, if I'm doing this right, you, you need to calculate the net present value to then calculate the IRR. If I well, The two are very much related. So yeah, I, yeah. I would say after simple payback, most people are looking at net present value where, and they're, they can be familiar with this, with the time value of money. Mm-hmm. They're pretty much bringing, looking at all cash flows out into the future and then discounting them back to the present value. Right using their 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 required rate of return right that percentage number yes right. yeah that's yeah. right which if, if that could be 20 i don't know i've learned like i've always used like what 20 percent or something i don't know maybe that's a crazy number but oh that yeah that's i mean that's well, what the sticking point becomes yeah there, i don't think there is anything that's, that's very very particular to any yeah. organization even right. within the same market so you get into well so then so net present value you bring all those cash flows back to the present. And generally, if it's greater than zero, well, they say it's a worthwhile project, but that doesn't mean it stops there. Right. I mean, in comparisons now, the internal rate of return is just a switch around of that NPV calculation where now you're setting your net present value to zero and you're solving for internal rate of return. Now, this becomes a much more complicated calculation that you either need software, a fancy calculator like Mark apparently has, <laughs> or just some trial and error. And you might be doing, you know, a calculation four or five times to so kind of zero in on, you know, what would be the return, ter- what's the rate of return for the project. And then again, this is more of a springboard I've seen to then comparing alternate uses of the money. That's exactly correct. And, Actually, uh, Excel has an IRR calculation in it too, so you don't need a fancy calculator. Although you can buy an app, I think for three bucks, that basically is a HP financial calculator simulator uh, for your phone. So it, anybody that does this 
in reality, if instead of going through the iterative process of calculating IRR, it's well worth getting familiar with Excel to do it or the calculator. But your definition is exactly right, Nick. So it, it, to simplify that, maybe he did do it well, but I was sidetracked thinking. Internal rate of return is the rate of return which makes the net present value zero. So if I if I say, okay, my net present value, pick a number, is $350,000, all right, I keep raising the discount rate being applied yeah. until net present value equals zero, and that is basically your internal rate of return. So it's my present. How does that when work? the present you- worth of the cost equals the present worth of the benefits. That's what I have in my notes. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. And and it works because future cash flows are worth less as you raise the discount rate, but the value of the investment stays constant because that occurs in year zero. So I'm just kind of reasoning, I think, why you don't see, or at least I haven't run into a lot of internal rate of return requirements in a government setting or school is because it, then it depends on their internal cost of capital, right? And so they'll have something called, like with a simple payback, the customer may tell you, we don't want to look at anything greater than five years. Mm-hmm. If you're doing some time value of money type evaluations. They may say, our internal hurdle rate is 6%. And it may mean something like, well, their cost of capital internally, maybe That's 4%. Right. So. You know, and then they do some other math to figure out, but uh, unless I'm missing something, I don't believe your your local school district necessarily has a cost of capital that's a yeah, part that of makes the financial operations. So they're yep. not going to look at internal rate of return. They're more interested in net present value, cash flow, present worth, annual worth. There's a number of different things to look at, but it does so if your industrial customer says, we have an 8% hurdle rate. So that kind of tells you, well, you're going to be calculating internal rate of return. And if you bring them two projects and one has a has an IRR of 9%, mm-hmm. one has an IRR of 15%, well, the 15% one is better. And it, they both surpass their internal hurdle rate or minimal, what do they call that? Minimum acceptable rate of return. <laughs> lots, of ac- lots of acronyms in this whole financial stuff. It's crazy. (laughs) So uh, I'm going to comment on that, Nick. Um, You are correct. The the 15% would win, the 9% would lose, but let's go back to our chiller comparison to the light bulb, which would have the higher IRR. Of course, the light bulb would win, right? So, you know, especially in in business school and, and you know, that kind of thing. And and our experience with large scale commercial and industrial customers, net present value is the only financial metric that gives you an absolute consideration of what the project is really worth. Net present value, when it's performed properly, tells you if you have a choice between doing the project and its net present value in cash, then you're ambivalent between those two choices. So with net present value, applying the same discount rate, you can care, compare projects of different size on a uh, apples to apples basis. Because you'll end up with dollars. Correct. Yeah. 
Well, and even different time frames then, right? Or did you say that? Different physical lives. Yes. Okay. Which would correlate into yeah. you know, cash flow. This will be positive for 10 years. This will be positive for four years. So it right. does take in different terms of the investment, mm-hmm. wherein something like return on investment, ROI, which is often thrown around a lot too, that can be deceiving as well because you're you're basically looking at what was my ending value, what was my beginning value, right? How much did I make? But you know that could have been you know the one that had the best ROI could have been over five years, and your lower ROI could have been over one and a half years. But it doesn't necessarily mean the one was better because the other one you're freeing up the cash flow sooner or cash to do other things with. So, yeah, are we are we simplifying this for everybody out there? I mean, it makes sense to me. Net present value is good. That turns everything into present worth dollars, and that's really how. That's a good way to financially assess the validity of a project, or when you compare projects. Now, the government also uses, especially the the Army Corps of Engineers. At least these they used to be really into this benefit cost ratio, which sounds real easy to understand. And I think it kind of is. And you're yeah, I think back, it's pretty simple. You know, well, the ratio of all those present values of your costs and your benefits and just doing a ratio. And if it's greater than one, then it's a theoretically a worthwhile investment. Again, though, that gets you into the, you know, ROI world of it doesn't compare the magnitude so much, right? That is correct. Yeah, because yeah. you're just coming out with a ratio so mm-hmm. you can compare different projects. No, that's funny. I had that on my notes too. And uh, that's funny you brought that up as something. I didn't know if the benefit cost ratio was something that people really took into consideration a lot with, with all the other options available. Yeah, I think it's interesting. So like Mark and industrial customers you're aware of, or can you break it down by market or could we break it down by market? What do we see? If there's one financial metric they're most interested in? Well, and it, and it always is interesting because especially the industrial customers we work with are typically multi-site facilities that it can happen a couple of different ways. Either corporate directs these facilities to uh, engage us for analysis of projects, development of projects and or local sites that can can engage us directly. So at the local level, you know, their marching orders are very clear. Straight line payback, nothing over three years. Okay. Generally, once you get to corporate, they're doing usually after tax discounted cash flow analysis with net present value. Hmm. So, you know, and... The, the level of sophistication and need for that kind of review is pretty significant because the projects are generally large, you know, two, five, ten million dollar projects that I wouldn't myself, I would never invest in a project knowing that it's over a million dollars just because the straight line payback is three years or five oh, years. Yeah. You know, there's just too many, you know, we talked about the risks. So when you do net present value, you may have, let's just, let's just uh, break it down a little bit. You may have the specific cost of capital 
pick your number, 4%. Then there are the specific risks of energy volatility, legislative risks. What if you know our refrigerant becomes you know mandated uh, as is becoming obsolete? There's technology risks. Who would have thought? You know, I'm I'm older than you guys, but when we replaced the fluorescent lamps T12s with uh, T8s or T5s, then you know eight years later they're obsolete. They're found to be obsolete by in- installing LEDs. Then there's the cash flow timing. Then there's the building operations risk that says, okay, we may or may not add square footage. We may or may not add lines. We may or may not add load. So, you know, using, uh, we always used to use the capital asset pricing model to aggregate up those risks and adjust that discount rate so as not to overstate the net present value including their hurdle rate plus the specific risks of the project. So, yeah, I mean, once it gets up to corporate, straight line payback won't cut it. Yeah. So they'll move forward, though, you're saying, Mark, with the simple, the straight line payback and your your local, you know, places will, will make a decision and move forward on a project. If you can bring them a, a three-year project, they'll do that all day. But okay. in general... When we get to larger projects, corporate directive is we want you to obviously hit uh, singles and doubles all day long. That's how we make our living. But when you can swing for the fence, you swing for the fence. So obviously not every site will have the opportunity for multi-million dollar projects you know, based on their configuration or their planned life cycle or their product development phase. but as, as good business people, good business partners, it's incumbent that we, if you see a big project, you at least need to get to the point where it's fully explored and vetted before it's turned down. Yeah, I wasn't understanding if you just had to meet that straight line payback at the local site before you even got an audience with corporate and they would make a decision. But it sounds like it's not that. That, and I guess I am a little surprised that even with the three-year, you know, straight-line payback, there are other considerations that, uh, you know, with cash flow and everything that aren't accounted for in that, and salvage value and maintenance and. Yeah. So, no. You know, well, maybe maybe I'm not explaining it well. It, um, a three-year payback project that gets the rubber stamp at the plant level usually, but if it's a five-year payback project that has a significant net present value. That needs to go to corporate, you know, uh, for more review, further investigation, a lot more detail. That's all I'm saying. Not that. Oh, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, it's when you brought up salvage value and all that good stuff, man. Oh, man, I remember doing all those calculations in school. <laughs> well, yeah, and well, I imagine in, in the more the industrial settings or private, you're you're dealing with those things in depreciation mm-hmm. and other you know, variables that go into it that maybe wouldn't be in a public sector setting. You know, after tax, before tax, that's, Mm -hmm. you know, I've done very few of them and they've all been for, you know, manufacturers or that sort of place. Right. So Mark, tell me when you bring in the, the modified accelerated cost recovery system for depreciation. 
Well, the, the depreciation levels, uh, I'm sorry, the depreciation methods applied, whether it's double declining balance, straight line, or MACRS, mm -hmm. th that's all driven by the, the site or the company. In general, accountants, being accountants, we don't dictate to them what depreciation method they should use. Okay. <laughs> they tell so us. Now um, saying we use this, this, or this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So, you know, the, the MACRS is, is great, uh, especially for energy projects. And the other side of that that we haven't really talked about is engagement of the local utility yeah. uh, for uh, potential rebates. And, and you know, we've, we've done quite a bit of work with utility companies um, under their usually uh, custom rebate programs. And, you know, obviously their standard rebate programs as well. But those rebate programs can add a lot to the uh, financial performance of energy projects. Back up one second too, Mark, for my education. So the depreciation methods, and I thought everybody used makers at this point, the M-A-C-R-S. R-S, yep. Whenever there's an acronym that's more than three letters, I always try to just say it. <laughs> I don't know if that's how it's used, but M-A-C-R-S, I thought that was now a standard that's part one, I guess, of the question. But then two, depreciation would only factor in when it's a taxed entity, correct? Correct. Okay, and that's where yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, tax benefit. So, I mean, okay, makers is a is a standard, just like straight line and double declining balance. I mean, they're all uh, standards, but according to FASB, you pick one, and then once you pick it for that asset, you're sticking with it. Gotcha. Okay. I did not know that. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. What do you mean? So, pick, I, pick it for that asset. Like when you put it on the books, when you put it on the books. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you can depreciate for seven years. You yeah. can't switch in year three and do a different. Yeah. Method. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. But, but you could, you could put one tax taxable thing, whatever you want to call it on the books as one and one as the other, if you felt so compelled. It, or if it didn't qualify. Okay, yeah. Makers. Right. Yeah, well, yeah, Makers has its own kind of schedules for what it is and where it falls for the three, right. that five, seven. I forget, you know, okay. exactly what it is. Yep. But yeah, there are guidelines for it. You can't just willy-nilly say, yep. this is going to be a seven-year Makers. Okay, but that's dictated by the, the customer then, that method of depreciation. Yes. Okay. That's always been dictated by the test problem for me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, just like a customer. Yeah, I mean, I guess. Yeah. That, well, that's why I asked the question, though. I mean, it was interesting to hear that. Awesome. And we, and we, I think we covered a lot, a lot of, a lot of aspects on this, Mark. And I think you dove into it. Do you want to talk a little bit about, uh, like, the sensitivity analysis portion, or do you, do you think we covered that pretty well already? I, I don't think we covered it. Okay. Not at all. Yeah. So. Once we get to a certain level and there's a threshold of investment, it's very typical to be requested to do some sensitivity analysis. And a sensitivity analysis basically is a scenario. It's a, a um, models, scenarios based on changes, fluctuations, best case, worst case scenarios of performance for the project. And that can include a spectrum of uh, energy avoidance. It can be 
a spectrum of energy costs as costs rise or energy costs per unit rise or fall. It can be a spectrum of operating hours of the facility or any number of other variables that are incorporated in the energy study. So as professionals, we need to be prepared and, uh, and conversant in the subject of sensitivity analysis so that we can model the to the to the customer's expectations what may happen under specific scenarios where the facility or external parameters change that impact the financial performance of the project and in many cases and we've talked about it in a few uh, failure to acknowledge that there are outside parameters which impact the financial performance of the building like Oh, the need to shut down a building, shut down a school, shut down a project line, a product line in a, in a manufacturing facility and or shift changes from three shifts a day to one shift a day all impact the energy performance. And in the event that that happens, uh, especially with ESCO projects, there needs to be a contractual caveat that speaks to that. Otherwise, you run the risk of litigation, arbitration, mediation, all the bad legal things. So um, that sensitivity analysis is relatively easy to do, assuming that you do all of the financial calculations in Excel or some other spreadsheet program where you have adjustable parameters for energy costs, energy escalation per year, uh, maintenance costs per year and escalation, all adjustable. So as you construct your financial model or use the financial model, make sure that you have the the knobs to turn built in so that you can do that sensitivity analysis and prepare multiple cases for the, for the financial manager. Yeah. The sensitivity analysis part is uh, I think would be considered a, a risk management tool. And maybe in the context we're talking about, it's mainly for, you know, the customer to understand how, if things vary on their end and just, I mean, the litany of things Mark included and then, you know, there's weather and there's other things that they have limited control over or no control over. But for performance contracts, I think this is a very underutilized aspect because the same can be the same risk tools can be used on their end to understand, you know, the impact of operating hours on a project, anything they're going to be out there measuring. You know, if they're 5% over under lighting measurements, how does that impact the overall savings? And then it also kind of helps you to, when you do these, even looking at a, you know, you know, a while ago, we used to just do like single factor sensitivity analysis and you'd make a cool chart. You know, you do, you change each variable that was impacting things, you know, go plus or minus 10% on that, make a chart of it. And you can kind of see well, this, this variable doesn't really have much of an impact if it sways between minus 10% and 10% of what we right. think it is. Uh, so, you know, we're not going to be too concerned about that, but while we can really see this variable over here, you know, particularly our natural gas rate, you know, let's say that's really going to have an impact on the savings and we can see how big they're going to swing. And again, I think it helps all parties involved because it gives you an understanding of, you know, especially with these agreements, it's all, there's risk there. It's just a question of who's going to, who's going to take responsibility for the risk. And sometimes, you know, it has to be shared. Sometimes it's all on one party or the other, 
But nowadays too, with very simple Excel tools, you can do very complex multivariate sensitivity analysis and run 20 different scenarios, all changing different variables and kind of get an idea of, hey, where is this thing likely to land? Well, and Nick, you're exactly right. And, you know, as someone who's been on both sides of this, all the way from investing in energy projects, you know, with my own money uh, to counseling uh, folks regarding investment uh, in energy projects, what you're looking for in sensitivity analysis is what one or more um, variables could be the potential deal killer that make everybody unhappy. And usually you, you can vet that out. And then, then once you find out what variable or combination of variables is the deal killer, then you try and put a, you know, uh, a probability on that and say, okay, am I willing to accept that risk? So you're exactly right. Both parties, whether it's, you know, in an ESCO situation or the contractor or the financier, uh, all the parties should be doing some level of risk analysis using uh, sensitivity analysis for their own benefit and enlightenment. Because just like when you invest in anything else, if you don't say, am I willing to accept this risk, you know, not being aware of the risk is a wholly unacceptable position uh, as far as I'm concerned. So when you do this sensitivity analysis and you identify those risks and the, those fluctuations that could that could yield whatever different results, like where does that go? Like, I mean, do you just say, yeah, well, I did the sensitivity analysis and we all agree this can happen? Or is there a, does that turn into like a threshold of savings or return? Well, That's one, I would think you'd try to see like, how can we control this if there's something mm-hmm. out there? Yeah, right. Okay. From my perspective with, you know, the measurement and verification, there are definitely ways to control risk, you know, by either improving your, your sampling or your measurements pre-retrofit or post-retrofit the way you approach it. But there are things that are completely out of your control. Right. So you're just, uh, so I wouldn't say that necessarily anything would be abandoned. Uh, I mean, the risk could be too great, right. That a project could be shelved because of, uh, right. You know, mm-hmm. it's not predictable. Mm-hmm. Got just another form of security, I guess, maybe if you want to call it that, say, okay, this is what we're doing is solid. There's not a lot of variance. Yeah, it's a sensitivity analysis, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it goes to what Mark always says. I mean, that third dimension is how certain are you? Mm-hmm. That's really what it is. It's certainty. Right. It's more, you know, accurately, it's uncertainty. You know, mm-hmm. and that's what we can really measure. How uncertain are we? Uh, but yeah, but then this goes into, you know, the deeper, you know, elements of, you know, risk analysis and again both sides can use this to their advantage and i think it helps it make it a stronger project too because again you're talking about the expectations that this thing is going to work like we all want it to work and you're quantifying that basically with the sensitivity analysis you're attempting to well at least you you put it under a magnifying glass so yep. folks can understand the risk is present mm-hmm. uh, at a minimum you know it always uh, it, it worries me, you know, we act as consultants for clients that engage in performance contracts 
and it always uh, gives me a little bit of a, you know a nervous twitch when we sit across the table from the ESCOs and you're asking questions. Well, what happens if and there's crickets? That's not a good day. I think there's a you know a, a really high level of performance in general in the ESCO market. With that said, it varies widely geographically based on specific offices and participants and those kinds of things. So uh, even though there are generally risk mitigation headquarters and reviews, uh, the performance level still varies location to location. So I I think it's important that ESCOs and owners alike uh, understand the reason for sensitivity analysis and apply it accordingly. I can't disagree with that. Yeah. You ever heard of a lenticular image? No, no. It's the kind of image. It's like an optical illusion uh, where your, your perception changes of the image based on the angle from which the image is viewed. You could probably find a bunch. Oh yeah. I know what you're talking about then. Yeah. Yeah. Wicked cool. But that's really what, I mean, risk is it's very lenticular. Mm-hmm. You know, it really depends on what angle you're viewing it from. So, yeah, I've been in those meetings too and have been asked, and you know, what happens if the weather changes? Well, you know, the ESCO will say, we can't control the weather. And that's pretty much where that conversation ends. But it really should go deeper and say, well, how bad do, you ex- do we expect the weather to change? Right. Correct. You're talking, you've really got, you know, real money on the line and bills that need to be paid with this, then it does matter. You know, how far am I going to, you know, how, how deep could I go or how much surplus could we actually have? So now COVID's going to be put into the sensitivity analysis probably, right? Shutdowns. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Operating hours, capacities of people. Yeah. There's a lot of work being done out there, not only on that, but on the impact and how do people yeah. handle that. Yeah. Our air flows. I know there's different filtration expectations coming out and mm-hmm. all that, and ventilation standards may yep. change. And it's uh, it's a crazy new world. But again, which is like everything, there's risk in everything. And right, like it's going to happen whether you're aware of it or not. So, yep. Yep. Uh, <laughs> That's a good That's way exactly to exactly right summarize it. Yeah, <laughs> I agree completely. Yeah. Hey, huh. Captain, I see an iceberg. Don't worry. This is the Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a lot of great sea stories about risk, sure, and risk management and the blind sides that we put on as people and just yep. based on experience. And yeah, mm-hmm. very interesting topic. Well, with that being said, should we wrap this episode up? Well, I, I, I have a quasi closing statement that I'd like to just kind of interject here. Yeah. So it really is this this brief podcast is certainly not meant to be the educational vehicle for individuals involved in financial analysis, but really as an eye opener, uh, showing the need to be conversant, be able to understand financial metrics. And there are certainly many, many uh, YouTube videos. And even I would recommend if you're if you're not really conversant in finance, uh, finance in general and financial metrics, then go take a course at a, a community college online, a simple uh, finance 101 course. 
and it will really, really help understanding the terminology, the uh, impact of finances, both in your personal life and uh, also in your business uh, in your business uh, dealings. And I think that's a good good uh, wrap up statement, Mark. With that being said, guys, thanks for tuning in, and, and Mark and Nick, thanks for thanks for the the insight into all this. And stay tuned. Our next episode, we'll be discussing project design decisions. So thanks a lot and have a great day, guys. And for more information on our company's VS Energy or Applied Facility Science, check us out online. Uh, VS Energy's website is www.vsenergy.us. And Applied Facility Science is www.appliedfacilitiescience.com. So if you guys have any more questions, want to reach out, uh, look into what we do for our businesses, check us out. Thanks a lot.